Good morning, everyone. My name is David, and I serve at Trinity as one of the pastors. Thanks so much for taking time to be with us this morning. Uh, man, we, we miss seeing you, but we're glad that we get to be together this way. There's so many things that I know that we're missing during this season, uh, just missing uh, being around people, just normal things, doing things that we probably took for granted. Uh, and one of the things that I've really been missing, if I'm honest, is sports. I'm a huge sports fan, and uh, there's not much out quite yet. You know, there's, they're playing baseball in Asia, and they're playing soccer in Germany, and that's about it. And you can, watch, you can watch athletes play each other in video games on ESPN, I guess. But I really miss sports. And one of the things that I love the most about sports is I love watching a great comeback. When one team looks like they're going to lose for sure, and then there's this moment of reversal where everything shifts and they win. One of my favorite comebacks ever was last year in a soccer tournament called the Champions League. I know not all Americans are uh, soccer fans, but if you're not familiar with the Champions League, it's basically the tournament every year between the best teams in Europe, teams from England and Spain and Italy and France come together and they play each other. And it was the semifinals and they play a two-legged match, which means you play home and away. You play two matches and they add the score together to determine who advances. And my favorite club is a club from England named Liverpool. And Liverpool had made it to the semifinals and they were playing uh, arguably the best team in the world, Barcelona. And even if you're not a soccer fan, you probably know two names, Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. And Messi plays for Barcelona. And so Liverpool went to Spain to play the first leg of the, the, the tournament or their matches and they lost 3-0. And they came back to play the second leg, and they were missing a couple of their best players. They were down 3 nothing. Everybody really kind of had given up hope. And Liverpool scored four goals, gave up none, advanced 4-3. to three. I mean, it was one of the most amazing, dramatic sporting events I've ever watched. I loved it. I was running around and screaming. I think my neighbors were worried what was happening in our house. I was so excited because I love a great comeback. There's something about snatching victory from the jaws of defeat, that when the zero becomes the hero, when the agony turns into ecstasy, that moment. And there's something really magical about a great moment of reversal. Everything is headed in one direction, and then just like that, it's headed in the other direction. This morning, we're in week four of our journey through the story of Esther, and we're in chapters six and seven. And in chapters 6 and 7 of Esther, we see an amazing reversal. Actually, we see two amazing reversals. Now, let me remind us where we left off last week. Haman had gone to a feast with Esther and the king. And on his way home, he saw Mordecai and he got angry. And his, his family gave him the advice, well, why don't you make a tool of execution for Mordecai? And that made Haman super happy. So he falls asleep happy. And he's like, I'm going to get up first thing in the morning. I'm going to go to the king. And I'm going to say, king, I want to kill. I want to execute Mordecai now. I don't want to wait until the date when all the Jews are going to be destroyed. I want to kill Mordecai now. And so he falls asleep with dreams of that and with a smile on his face. Now, here's what this means if you're understanding the story. Esther wants to have another feast the next day, the next evening, where she can actually make her request known. But if Haman gets his way, Mordecai is going to be dead before Esther's second feast, before the king hears her request. This story is not going well. In fact, it's going in the wrong direction. But God is in the business of reversals. 
And there's two great reversals in this chapter. You know, this is not new, or this is not just an Esther. Throughout all of the Old Testament, we see that God likes taking the uh, unlikely, it chooses the unlikely, the, the thing that nobody else would choose, God chooses. He takes the weak to defeat the strong, the, the foolish to, to, to defeat the, the wise. In the Old Testament, uh, he consistently chooses the younger brother over the older brother. In the story of Joseph, Joseph says, what the enemy intended for evil, God used for good. It's the great reversal. There's a woman named Ruth who was a Moabite widow, which means she was not a Jewish woman, and she was a widow, and she ended up, through a miraculous series of events, becoming the great-grandmother of King David, eventually through which uh, David's line came Jesus. And then speaking of David, one of the most famous reversals or upsets in all of Scripture is David versus Goliath. God is in the business of reversals. And I just before we get into this, I just want to pause and say, I believe it's true for you too. I believe that God can reverse things in your life. This morning, you may feel like your life has been headed in the wrong direction. You may feel like you've lost all hope for certain situations or maybe for certain relationships, certain people. You may feel defeated. You may feel forgotten, alone, left for dead. You may be wondering, how am I going to get through this COVID-19 outbreak? How am I going to endure? How am I going to stay healthy? How am I going to find work? How am I going to keep going? And I want you to just know up front that God is in the business of reversals. And what he did then, he still does today. And this morning, we're going to see two types of reversals that God loves to do and that he still does. And the first one, we're going to call the reversal of honor and shame. Honor and shame. Esther 6 begins with one sentence, a simple sentence. It seems insignificant. It simply says, on the night or on that night, the king could not sleep. That same night that Haman cooked up his plan to create the gallows or, or an uh, execution device for Mordecai, the king cannot fall asleep. And so the king says, hey, bring me a bedtime story. And, and, and I want you to see God's sovereign work in this, in this moment. First off, the king can't fall asleep. God will not allow this king to have a night of rest. He's sleepless. Secondly, he chooses this book, the book of Chronicles, as his bedtime story. Now, the book of Chronicles was the official record of the Persian kings in which every official transaction of the court was recorded. I don't know why you would choose this book to be read as your bedtime story other than the fact that maybe it was so boring he thought it would put himself to sleep. He chooses this book seemingly randomly, and then whoever's reading decides to read about an event that had happened five years ago. Why read that far ago? God is sovereign. They discover about Mordecai. Oh, yeah, Mordecai saved my life. And nothing has been done for Mordecai. Now, actually, that was really unusual because in this culture at this time, if, a king, if somebody did something for a king like Mordecai had done for this king, it was very important to reward this person publicly because it promoted the king's safety in treacherous times to say, this is what I do to people, this is what I do for people who are loyal to me. It's the same reason why they would have done public executions for people who were not loyal to them. And so for Mordecai's act to have been overlooked five years ago was unusual. And the king knew it. He said, what, why didn't we do anything? Anything. And now look at this final little moment of God's sovereignty and how he puts this story together. As the king is trying to think through, what should I do for Mordecai? And it's, now it's early in the morning. He hasn't slept all night. He's up in the morning. He, he, he's thinking, what can I do for this person? Look who walks into the room. Look who shows up. It says in verse 4, that uh, chapter 6, that the king said, who's in the court? 
and Haman's out there. Now, why is Haman there? Because he wants to ask the king to kill the very man that now the king is determined to honor. And so the king says, Haman, Haman, come here. Haman, what should I do for somebody that I really want to honor? Now, in week two, we talked about Haman's pride, and it's on display here. Haman is so prideful. He's so arrogant. He's so self-assured and selfish and self-centered that he thinks to himself, well, he must be talking about me. I mean, who else would the king possibly delight to honor other than me? And so Haman comes up with this idea. He says, well, take, the, take a horse that the king has, has ridden on and a robe that has been on the king and the crown of the king and put this man up on that horse and have another really important person parade him through town saying, look at how important this person is. This is what the king does for those that he honors. And Haman is coming up with this idea. Now, let me just say something about this honor that Haman suggests. First off, in my studies, I learned that they believed that the king's robe would magically impart the benefits of royalty. And so Haman is beginning to reveal his own heart here, that he wants to be king. He wants to be on the king's horse. He wants to wear the king's crown. And in verse 10 of Esther chapter 6, here's the reversal. The king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. I mean, it's funny. This is a comical scene. Haman shows up, determined and intending to have Mordecai executed and he ends up because of his own words having to honor him and he has no one to blame but himself think about it why was he even there that early in the morning it was his wounded pride his tireless ambition and his murderous anger that makes him show up first thing in the morning he wouldn't have been there otherwise he wouldn't have had to do this otherwise but he got himself there It was his arrogance and his insatiable appetite for self-promotion that made him cook up this unbelievable suggestion of what to do for Mordecai. He brought this on himself. And it's this comical reversal of honor and shame. Now, in life, you and I, we often bring shame onto ourselves. We, We want to blame others. We try to blame others. We try to blame circumstances. We might even try to blame God. But we often cause our biggest problems through our own sin. And sin always has the same inevitable outcome, shame. Right here in Esther chapter 6, this is the turning point in this story. This is when it begins to shift from bad news to good news. The great reversal begins here. And look at this reversal of shame and honor. God sovereignly removes shame from Mordecai and elevates him and honors him. And at the same time, he removes the honor from Haman and shames him. This is what God does here, the reversal of honor and shame. And he does it for us too. Now, what does he do about our shame? Specifically, what did Jesus do about our shame? There's two things. Number one, he didn't ignore our shame. He didn't minimize our, our shame. He didn't explain it away. He didn't say it's not really a big deal because that wouldn't help us, because we know it's a big deal. 
If you've experienced shame, and we all have, you know it's, it's a big deal. And we all have this sense as we walk through life that there's something not quite right about myself. I don't always get it right. I don't always measure up to other people's standards. I don't always measure up to my own standards. So for Jesus to simply come along and say, ah, don't worry about it, just lower your standards, that doesn't actually help us at all. What did Jesus do? Well, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus went to the cross and he took our shame to the cross. He endured the cross. He despised the shame and now he's seated in a position of honor but first he took our shame upon ourselves he did not minimize it he did not excuse it he did not ignore it but also and i love this about jesus he doesn't beat us up with our shame either and he doesn't leave us with our shame because that wouldn't help us either in romans chapter 10 the apostle paul verses 9 through 11 says if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and you believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved For with the heart one believes and is justified or made righteous. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now look at verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, speaking of Jesus, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Jesus doesn't ignore our shame, but he doesn't beat us up with our shame. Jesus doesn't minimize or excuse our shame, but he doesn't leave us with our shame. The gospel tells us this, that at the cross, Jesus took your shame. No, actually, Jesus became your shame at the cross so that you could have the position of honor that only he deserves, the position of honor that he secured for you. This morning, do you know what it means to trust Jesus to take all your shame? And do you know what it means to trust Jesus to honor you how and when he chooses to? but ultimately to give you the position of honor in the kingdom of God, of being one of his own. Ephesians 2 says that while you were dead in your trespasses and your sin, that God, because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. Now this is the second reversal, not just the reversal of honor and shame, but it's the reversal of life and death, the reversal of life and death. Let's keep going with the story. Haman, after having to parade Mordecai around, he goes home in shame. I mean, talk about the worst day ever. And by the way, we'll see his day is about to get a lot worse. He goes home in shame. He, before he can even process what's happened with his family, who, by the way, at this point, his family are like, you're done for. Like, they were either superstitious or they were sensitive and discerning enough to know you've, you're up against somebody who's, who's way too powerful for you. You're finished. If this Mordecai is a Jewish man and you're trying to take down the Jewish people, he, now all of a sudden his wife and his family members, they know. But before he can change anything about what he's done, he's whisked off to Esther's second feast. And they get to the second feast in Esther chapter 7, and the king says again, Esther, what can I do for you? Anything, even half of my kingdom. And let's look at this. Pick it up in verse 3 of Esther chapter 7. It says, Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now this reply 
by Esther, it's brilliant on so many levels. I want to I share with you really quick six reasons why this reply is so brilliant. First off, she starts by saying, if I have found, play, if I have found favor... And it pleased, she already had found favor. He had already extended his scepter to her in Esther chapter 5. He obviously loved her and wanted to bless her, but she didn't presume. She, didn't, she humbly assumes nothing, and she defers to his will. If I found favor and if it pleases you. Secondly, she responds. He says, what's your petition or what's your wish and what's your request? And she responds in kind as directed by the king. She says, my wish is to save my life and my request is to save my people's lives. So she's doing exactly what the king has asked her to do. Number three, she connects her life with the well-being of her people. They're one and the same. Instead of just saying, would you save me at least? She says, it's together. If you're going to save me, you need to save my people. Number four, she quotes Haman's edict from chapter 3, verses 13 word for word using the words destroyed killed and annihilated fifth thing that she does is she validates and justifies her request by saying hey if, we, if they were just going to make us slaves i wouldn't even bother you with this because then we would at least have value to you but if they just kill us we have no value it's a loss to you and then the sixth thing that she does that's so brilliant about her reply she keeps the name of the villain hidden until the very end why for maximum impact she says it's a foe it's an enemy. Can't you see the king getting angrier and angrier and angrier? And then she says this wicked, and then with her last word, she reveals it. Haman. Now the king is furious that Haman would do this. We don't know if Haman knew that Esther was Jewish. I'm thinking he probably, this was a moment of shock for him. But either way, the king is so angry to know that his queen, who he loves, uh, who he has favor for, is, is in danger because of Haman. He feels tricked. He probably feels embarrassed because he's a part of this. So he goes out into the garden to try to uh, calm down. But Haman stays in and tries to beg for his life from, from Esther. And when the king comes back in, Haman has basically thrown himself onto the couch where Esther is seating, which would have been, that's how they they would have sat around the table to eat, reclining on couches. He's thrown on the couch, and the king sees this and thinks that Haman is trying to take advantage of the queen right there in front of him, and now the king loses it. Now, this is actually a really big deal because Esther, of course, was part of um, the king's harem, and the harem protocol was simply at this time that no one other than the king could ever be left alone with the queen or any member of the harem. They weren't even allowed to be within seven paces of one of the king's wives or, or woman. And the reason why is that when someone would lie with the king's wife or with one of the king's women, it was sort of the equivalent of laying claim to the throne. So this was a big deal. So the king comes back in and he sees this. He loses his mind. He, he, he wants to do something. And then the end of chapter 7, verse 9, it says this. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, he basically said, I got an idea. The gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. The reverse was obvious here, right? Mordecai was supposed to die. Haman was supposed to live. But in one moment, there's a reversal. Haman gets death and Mordecai gets life. This is, by the way, the heart of the gospel, that we've been brought out of death, dead in our sins, into life. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death 
to life. This is the reversal that God loves to do. He loves to find us dead in our sins, dead to him, no interest in him or in his ways. And by his spirit and through his grace, he breathes life into our hearts and he transfers us from death into life. It's the reversal, the great reversal of death to life. It's at the heart of the gospel. And Jesus does all of this for us. How? Well, it's actually uh, very similar in some ways to Esther. Jesus identifies with us. Esther risks her life to identify herself with the Jewish people. But Jesus gives up his life to identify himself with all of humankind. And Jesus then suffers for us. Isn't it interesting that in the book of Esther, the turning point is a sleepless night. The king can't fall asleep. And all of a sudden, we have the reversal of honor and shame as a result. And then that same day, later that evening, we have the reversal of life and death. That sleepless night is the turning point. Well, there was another person who suffered a sleepless night many years later. Jesus, the night on which he was betrayed, after having supper with his disciples, they walked to the garden. And Jesus said to his disciples, stay awake with me and pray with me. But as Jesus suffered in his greatest moment of struggle and sorrow, Everybody else fell asleep. Jesus was awake. While the whole town slept, there was a a trial that took place convicting Jesus of crimes that he never did. And on that sleepless night, it's the turning point in our story that Jesus Christ would suffer. And the next day, that he would be punished, that he would be whipped, that he would be crucified. Jesus removes the curse of death off of us by becoming the curse on the tree. That's how we get out of death and into life. And then not only did Jesus suffer for us, but listen, Jesus suffered as us in our place. The end of this chapter says, after Haman was killed, that the wrath of the king was abated, satisfied. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God towards sin and towards sinners. It was satisfied in Christ's sacrifice. Jesus died as us, as our substitute. And that's how we get out of shame and into honor and out of death and into life. John Stott said this. He said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. It's the great reversal. Many years later, Jesus told a story. It's recorded in Luke 15, and it really captures well the reversal of shame and honor and life and death. It's a father who has two sons, and one of the sons has run away and squandered his wealth and squandered his inheritance and broken the heart of the father. And this young Jewish boy finds himself in probably the worst place possible. He's working for a Gentile, and he's feeding pigs. And in that moment, he realizes, that it's this, what am I doing? It, the people who work for my dad have it better. So he goes back, not to ask to be a son, because he thinks that's not possible anymore, but simply to say, Let, make me a hired hand. I'll live in town, I'll earn money, and I'll pay you back everything that I've lost. In verse 20 of Luke 15, it says that when the son arose, he, he came to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, I want you to hear, this is shame in his voice. Father, I have sinned against heaven before you and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's all shame. 
But then look what the father does in verse 22. The father said to his servants, quickly, quickly, bring quickly the best robe. Cover him in my robe. The best robe would have been the father's robe. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand. This ring, speaking of inheritance and being back in the family. And shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. And then look how this story ends. At least this part of the story ends in verse 24. For this my son was what? He was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he was found. And they began to celebrate. Listen friend, that's my story. And that is your story. Or it can be your story. That we come to... We come to God and we say, I'm not worthy and I don't deserve to be yours. But God runs towards us and he wraps his arms around us and he loves us and he, and he kisses us, so to speak. And he says, let me cover you in my robes. Let me give you my ring. Let me put shoes on your feet and let's have a feast and celebrate. And, and let me take that shame off for you and exalt you to a place of honor of being my son or my daughter because you once were dead, but now you are alive. And this is the God that we serve, the God in reversals. Listen, I don't know where you're at. Maybe this message is giving you hope for someone else. Maybe this message is giving you hope for you. But whatever it is, the message is true. God is in the business of reversals. Honor and shame and life and death. He brings us out of shame and into honor and out of death and into life. We're going to close together. Pastor Anthony is going to lead us in this song called Living Hope. This song is full of gospel truth. And as we sing this song together, let the message of what Jesus has done for us find place in your heart this morning.